Hello, welcome to Profound Words Podcast. In this podcast, we try to go beyond surface level and get to what really matters in life. Now, in this episode, particularly, we're going to go into a very difficult topic and one that is riddled with all kinds of nuances that may trigger a lot of emotions and a lot of anger in some people and a lot of resentment for some people. So this is sort of my trigger warning for all those people. If you at some point don't feel comfortable with this content, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to listen to this, but I think it's important that we talk about this because it's something that is often the topic of conversation, but it's never addressed in a way in which brings us closer to resolution or brings us closer to a solution. So the topic of today is racial discrimination and how that is actually impacting our lives in today's world in 2023 and what we can do moving forward to eliminate or alleviate some of that racial discrimination. Now, we have come a long way since, you know, history and throughout history, racial discrimination, if you can really just boil it down to its rawest components, it's more about tribalism or what is known as tribalism. It's more about these people are different from us. Therefore, we should sort of stay away from them or not trust them or uh, create some kind of separation in order for us to be sort of safe from those people, right? Now, this sort of tribalism is sort of ingrained in us as human beings. Like I've said many times on this podcast before, your brain is not designed to make you happy or successful or to make you succeed in any kind of capacity or way. Your brain is designed to make you survive, to keep you alive. And in that understanding that, then we can understand that our brain ge normally generalizes, distorts, and eliminates. Now, what does that mean? It basically means that we don't actually see things as they are, but we actually see things in sort of a veil of our own perceptions, our own biases, and our own beliefs that permeate reality and makes us see it in a very different way. See, uh, let me just bring it back to a little bit of a, a story here. This was, I, I don't think you can even call this an experiment, but it was, it was actually a TV show that they did this with a whole bunch of tourists in Scotland, in Loch Ness, Scotland. Now, the legend has it, the famous Loch Ness is the place where this mythical creature lives, supposedly, where there's this like dinosaur creature that lives in the lake that has been there for basically millennia, right? And so this entire idea of the Loch Ness Monster and basically creating all of this folklore and all this touristy attraction around this mythical creature has led people to have a preconceived notion about what to expect 
when visiting Lucknow. So the basically the the theme of the show was they took tourists to uh, Loch Ness, right? And then somebody would basically expose a pipe, a steel pipe out of the water and then sink it back in. This was pre-planned, right? So they, they would stick out this, this steel pipe and then sink it back down. And people started creating all kinds of stories around Oh, how they saw the Loch Ness Monster and how they saw a fin or how they saw a neck or how they saw teeth or how they saw all kinds of stuff. They were asked to make drawings about what they saw in the water, right? And people started drawing like long necks and monster-like creatures. They started showing fins in the water. They started showing tails, like all kinds of body parts of the Loch Ness Monster because this is what they were expecting to see or this is what they believed to see because they already had that perception in their minds. So when they actually showed them, it was just a steel pipe. People were shocked, but some people said that they knew it was not the Loch Ness Monster, but they just went along with it because everybody else saw, saw the monster, right? So there's a lot of things going on there. There's a lot of stuff to unpack in that single situation. But understanding that our own biases and our own perceptions, our own preconceived perceptions about other people, about other races, about whatever it is, then lead us to behave in a very different way than we would if we actually looked at things objectively or maybe waited to have all the facts. The mind is is very flexible and on our ability to make sense of our experiences in this world. I mean, look, we can we can create stories to make sense of almost anything, right? One of my a classic study in psychology, and have you ever heard of um, the 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 cognitive dissonance? discovery with the ufos and things like that have you ever heard no. the story it's a, it's a great story so um leon festinger and his student stanley schachter two two um major players in social psychology basically they wanted to understand what happens if people believe in something really really strongly and are then presented with evidence that there's no getting around it the evidence clearly says you are wrong in this belief and then their question was a simple one. When you're presented with evidence that contradicts your beliefs, what do you do? Do you update your beliefs? Or do you come up with some creative rationalization to allow yourself to maintain these beliefs? How does Schachter and Festinger test this idea about whether we take in the new evidence, update our ideas or not? They infiltrate a cult. Um, these are these are like professors and graduate students. They inf infiltrate a cult in Minnesota that believes in um, an alien race that has been visiting the planet for a while to see what's going on. And this alien race has determined that there's going to be this doomsday event on this particular day. And um, when this happens, if everyone in the cult get comes to this certain place, they'll be saved, go on the spaceships and go to the planet. I think it was Clarion. They've infiltrated the cult 
And they're there on the day when the aliens are supposed to come. And guess what happened, Chris? No aliens. No aliens. So they don't come. And um, and then they what is the what do the cult members do? Well, it turns out they just make excuses for this and that, well, you know, it didn't happen on the same, but it's going to happen three months from now. They make all they're they're rewriting this internal narrative that has been guiding them for all of this time, leading them to invest money and preparations for the migration and so forth and so on. Um, so this observation was really the the way we stumbled on this idea of cognitive dissonance, this idea that um, we really don't like to um, admit we're wrong and 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 really update you know ideas even when we're presented with information that contradicts them. Most of us generalize. Most of us just go straight towards what is immediate in the terms in terms of perception, right? So if I see, for example, if I see a lot of um, Asian shops popping up in my neighborhood, but I go into these the shops and the owners don't speak a lick of English, then I'm going to basically create a preconceived idea that these people don't care about my culture. They don't care about my country. They just come here and try to take people's money and they're not really trustworthy, right? So it creates this generalization about Asian people that is not fair because I don't have all the data. I don't really know this to be true, but I've already created a generalization that our brain does this in a way to protect us from potential danger. Now, if you see a tiger attacking a fellow human being, right, and killing them and eating, eating them, you're not going to go over and pet a tiger just to see if maybe this one's friendly. No, you're going to stay away from tigers because you create this generalization that, okay, tigers eat humans, right? So our brain does this to protect us, but this does not adapt to modern day society. Our brain has not evolved in such a way that prepares us for today's society. So in, in knowing that, we can understand that they're a knee-jerk reaction, okay? And that knee-jerk reaction needs to be checked in order for us to actually have a functioning society. But if we don't know to be aware of those generalizations, we're not going to even care or we're not going to be aware of those generalizations. So in understanding this, we can sort of understand not exactly, but sort of know a little bit about where does this racial discrimination stem from? And then it that gives us a very clear idea of what to do in order to avoid these uh, sort of generalizations that lead us to racial discrimination. Now, in understanding this, uh, something that's very, very important is a lot of the actual, um, I guess, today's standards or a lot of today's, I wouldn't even call them solutions, just sort of um, ideas towards solutions or maybe hypotheses, right? These sort of ideas, sort of like uh, critical race theory and that sort of stuff, leads us down a very tricky path. They're coming from a good place, 
where the intention is to alleviate some of the tension between different people from different races or backgrounds or whatever. But the execution then leads us down another path towards more generalization, towards more skepticism, towards more negative beliefs about the other race that leads us to be more paranoid and generalize and eliminate and sort of create this impossible uh, problem that is inescapable because racism is everywhere and everything and and there's no way to escape it and even if you're not being racist you're being racist because you're not aware of your racism that sort of that sort of idea that sort of belief leads us down a very troubled path because it basically creates this notion that everybody around us is trying to get at us especially if you're not white especially if you're not um traditionally right white right this leads us down a path of believing that everybody is out to get you especially those people who have white skin and blonde hair and blue eyes they're out to get me and they're out to destroy me and put me down and it puts us in this victim mentality where we've talked about this before but uh this victim mentality basically creates the idea that I don't need to do anything or I can't do anything. Even if I wanted to do something about it, I can't do anything. So it robs us of our own personal agency. And then we don't have to do anything. We just have to sit there and complain about all the things that these white people are trying to do to me. And then we nothing gets solved. We don't move in any way and we don't actually try to repair the divide because, hey, I can't do anything. I'm just a victim here. And so that type of mentality keeps us stuck in the same position. Now, you could disagree with me. You could uh, basically state the what, you know, the, the critical race theory dogma tries to state that I'm sort of whitewashing this right that i'm sort of apologizing for white people or that maybe i am looking at society from the white lens right so nobody's talking about eliminating differences i think that these differences between even if you wanted to call it racism if you just look at it from a biological perspective there are no differences between black people and white people and Asians. We have the same characteristics. We have the same uh, sort of biological markers. Everything is exactly the same, except for concentrations of melanin, maybe fat around the eyes, maybe um, concentrations of muscle or fat or whatever it is, right? So these are more of genetical traits that are not even that deep enough for us to call it a different race. But we've created this term and we've expanded it so much that now it's a whole thing. And I really subscribe to the idea that the more we talk about these differences and the more we expose these differences and the more we try to create these differences and we try to make ourselves different from these white people, right? Then it 
creates even more hatred. It creates even more separation. It creates even more resentment. And we've gotten to the point where in today's society, it's become acceptable, socially acceptable to discriminate against white people because, oh, white people can take it, or maybe white people are the oppressors, so it's sort of retribution, or the most popular explanation for this is that minorities cannot be racist because we don't have power in institutions or whatever it is, which is a complete lie because there are a lot of minorities in power. But also the, the belief that discriminating against white people is okay because, well, I don't have institutional power creates more resentment from the people that we should be trying to include in order to dissolve these differences. See, you don't get the support from somebody by calling them names and by discriminating against them and then creating stereotypes about them and by telling them how horrible they are as human beings. You don't get their support that way. All you generate is resentment and hate and separation, which is what we're starting to see now with a lot of people as well. This whole victim mentality gets us absolutely nowhere. And where my where is this coming from? Basically, I'm going to give you a little bit about my background. I am sort of in a unique situation because I've faced certain challenges and I've been immensely blessed in many ways as well. But one of the things that was immediately sort of present in my life was a deep sense of not really belonging anywhere because I was born in the United States and immediately as a, as a kid, as a young kid, when I was four years old, we moved to Mexico. Now, this sort of created a separation for me because in the United States, I wasn't really considered American because my parents were from um, Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic. Even though Puerto Rico is part of the United States, they consider it a different country for some reason. And Dominican Republic is a different country. Now, because of that background, even though I was born in that country, this sort of gives us an idea of where the relationship with race is in the United States, because this is a very uniquely U.S. thing. But in the United States, I'm not considered American, right? I would be considered either Latino or like um, Dominican or Puerto Rican, whatever it is. But I wouldn't be considered American. Now, in Mexico, I was considered American because I was born here. See, in every other country outside of the U.S., if you're born in that country, you're from that country. Like, it doesn't matter where your parents came from. It doesn't matter if your entire family is from a different country and you were born in that country, you're from that country. That means that maybe your whole family is from Lebanon. Let's say something, right? And you were born in France. If you're born in France, you're French. That's absolutely it. 
there is no and ifs or buts about it. Um, you can't say, oh, I'm half Lebanese, I'm half this or, or one quarter or that. No, you're French. That's it. And so it was the same in Mexico where I was born in the United States. Okay, I'm American. That's it. And so I didn't really feel like I fit in in, in Mexico either. I fit in basically with um, the language because I also spoke Spanish, but also didn't really fit in in terms of culture because I really felt American. I really felt like, um, you know, waving the American flag and singing the American anthem and doing all these things because that's where I was from, right? But then in my visits as an adult, in my visits to the United States, then people would actually, this actually happened to me once. There was a Mexican guy who came up to me and literally asked me, what are you? Like, he didn't even ask, where are you from? Or what's your ethnicity? Or what's your background? No, no, he said, what are you? Sort of like, what kind of Cocker Spaniel are you? <laughs> right? And so I didn't really take it personal. And I didn't really... Um, take it as a bad thing because I understand that this is the way that uniquely in the United States, we sort of create this separation where even if you have like 15 generations of people being born in the United States, but your great, 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 great grandfather was from Italy. Oh no, you're Italian. You're not American. You're Italian. Right. And so, this separation leads to more separation. So it creates this sort of mentality of, okay, this is my in-group and I fit in with the Italians. And so if I'm not around Italians, then I'm sort of betraying my roots or I'm sort of forgetting about whatever it is. And if you actually went to Italy, you would not fit in in Italy because you either don't speak the language, you maybe understand some aspects of the culture, but you're not really from there. So it doesn't really resonate with you. So in also, I've been blessed so many, so much in the sense that I've been able to travel a lot. Um, my parents were both um, psychologists involved with education and they got invited all over the world to do talks and conferences and whatever it is, and I got to tag along. And so in doing that, I got to learn a lot about different cultures and different people and different races and different ethnicities and whatever it is. And in that exposure, I got to understand, well, if let's say all of you, your descendants, right? Or maybe your ethnicity, right? If you call it that in the US, People would say in the U.S. that I am Puerto Rican, right? But that would be a fair story. Or maybe half Puerto Rican, half uh, Dominican, right? If I go to Puerto Rico, I understand the, the language. I understand the culture, right? I enjoy the food and the music and whatnot. But it's because I've spent time there. It's because I've been there many times and I have family there and go visit them and I, I spend time in that country. Now, if you would take me to Dominican Republic, I've been there twice in my life. Okay. And so I understand the language. I don't have the accent. I 
understand sort of the food and I like the food. I also understand the music, but anything other than that, I'm lost. I don't know the street names. I don't know the people. I don't know the, the politics around it. I don't know anything like about that because I haven't spent time there. And so calling myself Dominican would sort of defeat the purpose because I don't understand much about Dominican Republic other than the general aspect of the culture, right? And why am I going off on this tangent? I'm going off on this tangent because this is a very uniquely U.S. thing and that sort of gives us a bit of a glimpse into why there is so much racial tension why there is so much an emphasis on ethnicity and where you come from and what what kind of lineage you have right and so this idea of constantly trying to figure out all oh, where you fit in into this society creates more separation creates more generalization and creates discrimination because it creates these ideas that Italians shouldn't do this or do that or and it creates all these stereotypes that are so familiar to us in the United States because we go through it over and over again and we reinforce them and we go outside and we try to maybe break from the mold but it just keeps coming back to these stereotypes that even the most progressive people out there trying to lecture people about not being racist and how to be anti-racist and how to be woke and amazing and such an inspiration and an ally to everybody. All these people keep reinforcing the same stereotypes around race and around different ethnicities. And we don't actually get down to what makes us human, which is really what we should be talking about. And I really subscribe to the idea that uh, once Morgan Freeman said on an interview of 60 Minutes. Black History Month you find ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come well, on. What do you do with yours? What, which month is White History Month? <laughs> no, well, no, no, come on. Tell me. Well, the, I'm Jewish. Okay. Which I'm month Jewish. is Jewish History Month? Uh, there isn't one. Oh. Oh. Why not? Yeah. Do you want one? No, no. No, I, I, right. I, I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? Until... Stop talking about it. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. I know you as Mike Wallace. You know me as Morgan Freeman. And... I know that a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, that whole speech about not seeing color is also racist, right? Because it eliminates the, the struggles, right, that people go through with different ethnicities and different races, right? And it just sort of whitewashes that sort of situation. But look, I've been stopped by the police uh, with, for no reason. I've been followed around in malls as well for no reason. People have been discriminatory against me and say that I'm mixed or that I'm whatever it is. And look, I don't believe that we live in a racist society. 
And I don't believe that we live in a white supremacist society. Why? Because I'm able to speak about these things. I'm able to talk about these things. If we lived in such a society that is all about white supremacism and putting down minorities, I wouldn't be able to communicate to you in this way. And neither would anybody else for that matter, right? It wouldn't be possible, not for an inch, not for a single iota. It wouldn't be possible for anybody to get into a position of power without the right color of skin or without the right background or without the right ethnicity. Recently stirring controversy on Fox Sports when he said he personally doesn't see racism because so many of his fans are white. I thought that was clearly a message that there was no such thing as racism. There was a lot of backlash from people about that. Would you change it, what you said, or no, you still be the all. same way? What's your thought on, on Black Lives Matter? What is it? What, what do you mean? The idea is that there's this movement called Black Lives Matter thinking that the rest of America didn't seem to understand that, that Black Lives Matter. It just sounds weird. I don't know that you put a name on. It's not a name. It's not whatever, whatever. If somebody got shot by police for up reason, I am a young, black, rich If that don't let you know that America understand black matter these days, I don't know what it is. Don't come at me with that dumb man. I don't believe we live in such a society. And making those distinctions and talking about uh, what makes us different as human beings just leads to more discrimination, more separation, more resentment, more hate, more all of that, right? And reinforcing that then is the media as well, where they keep talking about, oh, well, a black person got shot by police officers, right? And there, that's a, an entirely different discussion, and we will get into that as well. But the whole situation of creating this fear mentality towards minorities specifically is all about basically clickbaiting, right? <laughs> See, we got to understand that news outlets, especially in this day and age, right? News outlets get paid in terms of how many people consume the content right how many people click on the video how many people go to the website how many people click on the article and want to know more because you know newspapers are slowly dying and nobody watches tv anymore right so the news outlets need to figure out ways to attract people's attention and the way we do that is by being extremist and sensationalist and creating all this doomsday uh, fear and paranoia because we need clicks. If you look at the title of a video, right, by whatever news outlet you subscribe to, right? If you look at the a title of a video that says, beautiful day, everything is awesome, everything is fantastic, um, everything is working perfectly. Are you going to click on the video? No, you're not going to click on the video. You know why? Because you have all the information. You have everything you know. You want to know from that video. Even from the title, you have everything you know. Everything is perfectly awesome. Now, if you look at a title of a video, 
that says black 15 year old shot down by police officers are you going to click on the video yes you're going to click on the video because you have already this perceived notion that police officers are racist and then you go into the video with the expectation of seeing racist police officers which then leads us to many of these the current situations that are going on um, around that particular topic where even if the police officers are black themselves we still say that they're racist or even if the the there were white police officers shooting a white person then they're still racist somehow it's just keeps reinforcing that idea because we have a very deep ingrained need to be consistent with our own perceptions with our own beliefs right and so if we truly believe that police officers are racist in this country then we go into whatever happens or whatever happens in the story we are going to come out with the conclusion that police officers are racist it doesn't matter what race the police officers are what race the the victim was what race uh, it doesn't matter right they're racist because we already have that idea and we basically go there go to the the story to confirm our own ideas right we don't go there to learn the truth we learn there to we go there to basically reinforce our own biases right and so the police thing is a completely different situation now in terms of police yeah it is a problem because yes a lot of police officers immediately go for deadly force now the biggest problem there is not a problem of discrimination or racial discrimination it's more of a problem with police officers not being equipped at all to handle these highly stressful situations that we're asking of them and so this brings it down to more of a problem with the training that are is required from these police officers now there's a very great uh, excerpt here I'm gonna show you right now from Jocko Willink talking about this particular topic I've been saying for years now that our police forces need more training and that kind of situation you need to train that you need to train that so much that it becomes second nature that people actually learn how they're going to emotionally handle those scenarios when they're on the ground so we've got a lot of work to do there but again if we just point our fingers at at gun control that means we're not taking any steps to change the way we're training our police forces so again the blame game doesn't help us i mean here's an instinct when somebody's shooting at me i'm gonna run away and i'm not gonna go back so so police officers have to overcome that instinct to go and stay and maneuver towards fire that's overcoming their natural instinct but there's sometimes where the methodology is wrong and so you have to be good enough to overcome your methodology and go with your instincts sometimes. I used to, it's another thing I used to say to these young SEALs. If you, I'd say, hey, if you were gonna go in that room right now and I was in there and you were 10 years old and I was 10 year old, years old and I had a squirt gun and you had a squirt gun and you were gonna enter this room, how would you do it? And they'd show me. And I'd say, doesn't that make more sense than what you just did 
And they'd say, yeah, it does. But they would follow some standard operating procedure that didn't make sense in a particular room. But they would do what they were taught to do, even though it didn't make sense. And the ability to decide whether your instinct is right or wrong, you get that ability by being able to take a step back and assess. And the way you get that ability to take a step back and assess is through training. And it takes time. And that's why I use that term, that, that, that idea of 20% of time for police officers should be spent training. And you're going to end up with infinitely more qualified and prepared police. There are no federally mandated training minimums for police officers in the United States. So there isn't a national standard. And so, I mean, there are 18,000 police departments and law enforcement agencies in the United States. They are all doing drastically different things. Training requirements for police vary state by state, sometimes even region to region, municipality to municipality. Since police training is largely decentralized in the United States, the process varies from state to state. Once they've been hired, depending on if the agency itself has its own academy or whether or not they rely on the state uh, academy, uh, the officer will be sent if they're not certified already, be sent for basic training. It's important to know that there are 37 states for which the police are allowed to work before they even attend basic training. One of the biggest issues in police training that experts point out is the minimum standard hours required to become an officer. Excluding field training, basic training programs lasted an average 840 hours dramatically less than other professions such as cosmetology, massage therapy, electricians, plumbers, many careers that have far less responsibility and ramifications if, if something goes wrong. And guys, basically the police need more tools in their tool belt. And what do I mean by that? I mean that they need to figure out how to control a subject, a suspect, or subdue a suspect without killing them. And see, something that is very, very important to understand is that, number one, people respond very differently in stressful situations than they would do when they are calm. And that's something that mo most people don't understand because they've never been in that stressful situation. And I hope you never do. But very stressful situations where you don't really know what's going to happen if this guy is crazy, if he has a knife, if he's drugged, if he's whatever, right? If you're dealing with a criminal or somebody who's out of their mind, you don't know what's happening in that situation. And it's a very stressful situation. And so if the only tool in your tool belt is a hammer, right, then the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to reach for the hammer. Now, in this analogy, the hammer is obviously a gun, right? So if all you know how to do is take out a gun and intimidate somebody, shoot them, then that's the first response you're going to have every time. The same thing goes with tasers. The thing, same thing goes with pepper spray. And there's also a lot of danger related to, to tasers, a lot of dangers to the person receiving the taser. There's also a lot of dangers with pepper spray, not only for the, the person receiving it, but also for the police officer. There are a number of different problems around using weapons specifically, but 
police officers need something else other than weapons in order to control people and subdue them. If people, if police officers don't know how to subdue a, subs a suspect without hurting them or killing them, then basically all they have is their weapons. That's all we're giving them. They're not being given knowledge about how to control another human being who doesn't want to be controlled. And so they need martial arts training. They need it desperately. They need martial arts training, basically. And I would say more emphasis on grappling arts, more Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a great option. Wrestling would be a great option. Sambo would be a great option. But basically figuring out how to control somebody who do, does not want to be controlled. That's the main thing that officers need to learn. And they're not being given that. Some, some officers are now starting to get that training, but it's not widespread and it's not in every state and it's not in, even in every city. It's not even in every town. It's just sort of some police departments that started implementing this and they're getting good results from it because, well, there's less people getting shot, which is great, but there's still a big need for that and understanding that also leads us number one to a solution and needs us also to understanding that it's not a race issue it's more of an issue with policing it's more of an issue with the implementation of policing right and so and understanding this and what i want to really emphasize with this entire episode of the podcast is that we need to stop making a big deal out of race if we're actually going to diminish racial discrimination or eliminate it completely we need to stop making such a big deal of oh i am this or i am that or i belong to this group or, i belong to that group that's creating separation let's stop calling each other names let's stop calling each other black or asian or latino or whatever it is you just start calling each other by our own names. And I know that to some of you, that may be um, apologetic or that may be um, discriminatory in itself, but it's not discriminatory. It's really celebrating our differences. It's not really, I don't see color. It's saying, well, I see the color, but it doesn't really matter to me because what really matters to me is what's inside the person. I don't give a flying fuck about what color your skin is. I don't give a flying fuck about where your grandpa came from. If you treat me with respect, I'm going to treat you with respect back. And human decency. That's it. There's no conversation beyond that. And trying to make more of a problem out of this is something that a lot of people have a vested interest into. We need to also understand that. And look, I'm not trying to basically create some kind of conspiracy theory around this. No, I don't have any interest in that. Look, but let's be very real here. And let's be very... Um, pragmatic about this 
right? There's a lot of people with a vested interest in creating more separation and creating more racism because it allows them to sell a whole bunch of books. It, create, it allows them to get a whole bunch of keynote speaking opportunities. It gives them the opportunity to work at different universities. It creates an opportunity for them to go on TED Talks and do all kinds of stuff because they're fighting for the right causes, supposedly, when in all reality, they're just inflaming the problem and creating more separation and more racism. And so in doing this, we need to also understand that that's actually happening. And we also need to understand that that just feeds into the biases and the beliefs that we already have about the outside world, and then that permeates what we see in the outside world. I've not read White Fragility or How to Be Anti-Racist. Please don't. <laughs> How would you describe those books to me? Well, White Fragility is the second worst book ever written. I mean, literally, the, in terms of the books that I've encountered. I read one book once when I was about 20 that was supposedly explaining how various old Hollywood cartoon characters got their names. But the person who wrote it didn't have any ideas. And so it was things like, well, Daffy Duck was probably called Daffy Duck because of his Daffy personality. I remember back then thinking, this is the worst book I have ever read. Now, the second worst book I've ever read was when two summers ago I read White Fragility, just a truly horrific tome where the idea is that whites need to sit down in a circle and confront their complicity in an inherently racist society and understand that they're being subtly racist in just about anything that they do or say. And what you're supposed to do once you go from there is not clear. And, for, and D'Angelo even says to be hastily thinking about solutions, like what are we going to do in society? Where do we go from here? That's wrong. You're supposed to, quote unquote, do the work of identifying the racism within you. And she's very careful about saying she's not trying to be hostile. She's saying that you can't help being racist in this society. She's not condemning. But still, the question is, what in the world would all of this Zen-like self-discipline do for poor black people who actually need help? And you can tell that she doesn't give a good goddamn. And when asked what she thinks of black people who don't agree with her, she basically calls us Uncle Tom's. So that's that's all there is. And then with um, Kendi, one doesn't want to go too far into his work. And I avoided doing so too much until about a year ago when he started calling me out. But Kendi is somebody who thinks in binaries. He's not reflective. He thinks in, you know, binary oppositions. He's his stuff reminds me of book reports, essentially. And his idea is that if you're not being actively anti-racist, then you qualify as racist. Now, I don't even know what that means, but that's the way he writes. And he is the um, he's the kind of black person who grew up actually thinking of white people as devils. That's a black nationalist kind of perspective. And he studiously makes sure to let you know that he's let go of it now. But that way of looking at things informs the way he sniffs the world. And you can listen to his talks and see that. He really does think that we live in this country that is stamped from the beginning with racism and all about racism now. And he comes up with these prescriptions for what should be done in this country that quite simply are those of someone who does not know much about how 
modern society's work and has never had to think about it. And I didn't talk this way about him for a good couple of years because I'm not inherently mean, but he's been so nasty to me. And he started it that I've decided, OK, I'm going to have to be honest. He's not 25. He's old enough to take it. And so really, Kendi is somebody who was working humbly, doing his best. And he was abruptly thrust into the spotlight two summers ago. And he's doing his best. But I am baffled as to what sort of leadership he's going to propose because he doesn't think subtly. That's it. So those are those are the two people. And I don't. You know, um, they have sold a great many books and gotten very rich, and that's fine with me. But the thing is, if you read the two of those books, it's very hard to see how they fit into America as it actually is, as opposed to this 1950 that Robin DiAngelo thinks we've never gotten past, or practically the 1850 that Kennedy seems to almost wish we were still in because his dichotomies would apply more gracefully. So, yeah, they're both um, – I frankly consider both books utterly worthless. Um, Kendi's, I wouldn't put on this worst book ever list. I just think that there's not a whole lot of there there. D'Angelo's book, as I've said elsewhere, should be used as furniture. It's a really, it's a nice size for if you've got a wobbly table, you could put that book under and your table would be solid. Truly terrible piece of work. But apparently some people disagree with me. Is there a sense that these people would be afraid to admit victory? that if they were to achieve some sort of equality, they're basically putting themselves out of a job. Yeah, um, I wouldn't put it that way. It's not that they're thinking I wouldn't have a job. If any, if they had to admit that things were not the way they say, it would deprive them of purpose, essentially. I'm sure that both both of those people and people like them at this point could retire. They never have to work again. It's not about having a livelihood. And I don't sense that, for example, with either D'Angelo or Kendi, that they especially like attention, looking at themselves on TV. I don't think that's either one of them. But if they had to admit that America is not the way they depict it, they wouldn't have anything to do. You know, all of us, as somebody told me when I was first starting out, we all have a few arrows in our quiver, essentially. There's a few things that we do and say. And if you can't use them, what else are you going to do? And, you know, Robin D'Angelo's in her 60s, for example. Kendi is pushing 40. You can't completely reform yourself after a certain point. And nobody wants that. And I think just in general, you you have a sense of your purpose on this earth. Well, if the job is already done, what are you going to do in your spare time? And something that also needs to be addressed, and I think this is going to be the last topic, is racial discrimination towards white people. Now, it's become extremely, extremely acceptable in our society to just completely go off against white people and say the most heinous things that you could ever imagine about white people and nobody has a problem. Nobody bats an eye. Not even white people would come come back at this and say, wait a minute, okay, you're, you're trying to come in here too strong. Not even white people are allowed to say that because they would be then considered to be racist themselves. Look, here's the thing. And here's the thing that we need to very be very aware of. We do not want to engage in the behavior that we want to eliminate. That would be like me saying, okay, you should never be an alcoholic while I'm holding an entire bottle of Jack Daniels and downing it like it's Sprite or something like that, right? This actually reminds me of a, a, an interesting 
sort of an interesting anecdote when I was a little kid. My mom was talking about how terrible alcoholism is and a whole bunch of kids that are engaging in it with a beer on, in her hand, right? And as a very inquisitive kid myself, I went up to her and I just confronted her about it and say, you know what, you're holding a beer in your hand while you're saying that. And she said, yeah, you're right. But how many beers do you see me drink? Or let's say a day or, or a week. Well, the truth is she drank like a beer a month. And do you see me drink more than one beer? No. Well, there you go. See, that's the thing that we need to understand. You say that saying these things about these other people is wrong. Yet in that same breath, you discriminate against white people. Oh no, but you can't discriminate about white people because it's impossible because you don't have a position of power. You have a token white and you're hanging out with your friend group of color. You need to ask permission from everybody in the group to bring your white friend. Like, don't just bring them. I might not be in the mood to deal with white shenanigans that day. That's that's all I'm saying. And another thing, it feeds into their ego. Like, don't don't let them think they're a good white person. Accomplices ask, how can they support black and indigenous people of color? And sometimes I really don't know what to say, but here's one easy way. Just don't have babies. Men can single-handedly cause the white genocide that they are so afraid of. With 2.25 billion Asian women and half a billion white men, Baby, it'll only take two generations. In two generations, there will no longer be any blonde hair. These are some things I noticed about white American culture. Being grounded is a punishment to them. That's what they call punishment. Hmm. The least grounded, least balanced, most destructive race considers being grounded a punishment? Yeah. They also say really violent phrases. They say things like, Kill two birds with one stone. Why do we have to kill the birds? Why is everything so violent? It's almost like one's language and phrases reflects one's nature. Hmm. So that new uh, Jeffrey Dahmer movie on Netflix is the perfect example of the sensationalization of white violence. People have a much easier time sympathizing with white criminals than they do with black victims. People think these shows are harmless, but they actually contribute to a much bigger issue. It contributes to the viewpoint that white people are less violent than everyone else, and white violence is something to be consumed in media, and that's it. What is with Caucasian people and, like, their inability to, like, read a fucking room? Like, y'all act like you don't understand shit. Because y'all be the first ones during a conversation about the Holocaust to get so mad when black people be like, you do realize that the original Jewish people were black, right? White people do not need to explain to anybody about us all bleeding red because baby, you all are the people that need to learn that lesson. Clearly history shows that you all are the people that like to pillage and eradicate, enslave and oppress, attempt to suppress greatness because you all simply don't have it, right? Here go y'all cum goblins who don't even live in the fucking city. Which, by the way, the Q-tip people are the last ones to ever talk about somebody stealing anything. Y'all wouldn't be in this country had it not been for y'all stealing it. 
But y'all are more focused on people looting and trying to get necessities and things that they need. And yes, a TV is a fucking necessity. Thank you. You feel like you're better than because people are out here stealing and ugh, you would never. First of all, if you are a male monster, that is how your ancestors got everything from stealing. People are and that's a behavior that's very common among white women. You may have not intended that, but there are many white women who act exactly like you. If you can find it in your heart this holiday season <laughs> to donate to the discriminated white fund, you'd be helping millions. Nothing says high protein like cicadas and cheese. Make sure you f And nothing says caucasity like that right there. What caucasity looks like. Roaming Asian grocery stores like it's an amusement park. Explain to me why white people don't wear shoes outdoor, but wear shoes inside. We are both white women. We are inherently a danger in spaces for black, indigenous, and other people of color simply by existing. It's white cis men who are a part of the far right-winged ideology of fascism. That is a truth threat and the terrorism to this country. If BIPOCs stand in the street and scream at the top of their lungs, I hate all white people, I want all white people to go die, die white devil, you cracker bitch, um, that's still not racism. You're not one of the good white people. Stop separating us from the bad white people. Don't sit out there in comments and say, we don't claim them. We are them. <laughs> we are the ones shooting up schools. We are the ones raping people, the ones enslaving people. We're and I'll say it. I hate being white. You know, which means I'm one of the good ones. All white people are inherently racist. Yeah. Can you be racist against white people? Based off of the definition of racism, yes. But it's not gonna hurt them and hurt their opportunities like it does people of color. Well, technically you can. It's not, like, an issue. You can't right. oppress the oppressor. It helps you sleep at night. Why do people not understand that you can't be racist to white people? It's it's impossible. The system is not set up that way. You can insult white people, but it is not racism. Me calling a white person a tub of mayonnaise and a like, flower-looking ass, it's not, that's not racism. You went all the way to Africa to physically take black people from their homes, shove them in on boats where a lot of them got diseases and died, told them where they could sit on a bus, told them which schools they could go to, which water fountains they could use, which bathrooms they could use, and that's sugarcoating it. Those are just terms. I'm not even describing all the disgusting things that happened, and they don't even want revenge? They are letting you guys skate by asking for equal rights? That's it? And you're still saying no? They are not as angry as they should be. Y'all are getting off easy and you're still saying no? Fuck you. Some people look at that and chalk it up to the grumblings of the powerless. That's the idea that when you have a power disparity, the less powerful sort of has this general society given leeway to complain about the more powerful. The villagers complaining about their king doesn't have the same ring as the king making side and crude comments about the villagers. But that's not what's going on here. Because although certain segments of our society refuse to believe this, even as evidence mount before our very eyes, in one side of the political aisle, people of color actually have greater power than white people. That is the truth that is not being acknowledged by the people that need to hear it because this gets in the way of them wielding that power in the way they want, malignantly. I've heard from somewhere that politics is downstream of culture and I think that is certainly correct. We have a mainstream culture that tells us it's okay to hold prejudice and hateful view of white people and our politics is then infused with this energy and we see active, 
overt and on the books racial discrimination of white people that those who are perpetuating this hatred is refusing to see as discrimination. They'll say, no, 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 this is remediation. These are the same people who are making tenuous arguments that some of our race-neutral laws discriminate against people of color. And this is certainly evidence that in one side of the political aisle, people of color have more power than white people. Because if we didn't have the power, we wouldn't be able to put into place practices and policies that does this. That's what power is. Things like Minneapolis local government agreeing to a contract with the teachers union that says white teachers must be fired first. New York City's government enacting a policy of having white seniors go to the back of the line on life-saving COVID treatment. A college professor that says white people should be killed and facing no repercussions. Cornell University banning white people from rock climbing lessons. One of many, many, many instances of liberal colleges doing the utmost to exclude and ostracize white students. BIPOC-only events equal no whites, but they don't have the guts to say that, even though that is what that is. That's what makes this different than the murk rumblings of the common villager. The villagers have surrounded the palace, demanding Mary Antoinette's head. The power dynamics have shifted. That is a fact. Progressive media outlets do not cover these stories. Some people out there have no idea that this is going on. But worse, some others out there know but agree with what's going on. Discrimination is not about position of power. Discrimination is discrimination. It's treating somebody as less because of the color of their skin. And so we need to completely eradicate that and change that from our language if we want to acknowledge and eliminate this problem. And guys, don't forget, to, if you want to donate to the channel, you can do so in the link in the description. And 15% of those donations go to preserving the oceans and the ocean wildlife. So please, if you want to donate, please go ahead and do so. Thank you to everybody who has donated. And guys, I'll see you on the next video. If you're looking for one-on-one -on -one coaching, there's also a link there. I'll see you later, guys. Subscribe to the podcast, and I'll see you in the next one.